This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Hard Anodized Sprockets, up to 66% lighter than steel sprockets. This is show 384, God, is it really that many, of the Paddock Pass podcast. We, or should I say the hatted pit lane store that is David Emmett, have recovered from the Sepang test, and we're recording this a week before the second and final go-round in Qatar. I'm Adam Wheeler, and it's an immense privilege, as always, to be joined by David and the king of bass and growl, Neil Morrison. On this show, we'll discuss the Rebel KTM factory racing and Repsol Honda team launches, and answer some questions from listeners sent to us through Patreon. Speaking of which, don't forget to sign up with us for the year at a 10% discount for access to all our Paddock Note shows from every single day of each Grand Prix, as well as other special content. Head to patreon.com and Paddock Pass podcast for the easy sign up. It's only a few days until fresh note shows will be posted from LaSalle. Before we move on, a reminder that KTM are celebrating 30 years of their distinctive naked bike, the Duke, and have some new models that were unveiled at a special launch event in Spain. KTM have mined the versatile LC8C engine platform to create the 990 Duke for a new ceiling of performance that will blast any country road. Count on first-class electronics, ergonomics, high-quality components, endless torque, and awesome looks. Have a look at KTM.com for more info on the brand new 2024 990 Duke. More KTM in a moment because the freshest launch was Repsol Honda in Madrid. Uh, we know that Repsol tend to treat the media quite shabbily, but the event was classic. And, um, <laughs> you, you still haven't forgiven them for that coffee, have you? Yeah, pathetic people. Uh, but, you know, the event <laughs> kind of ticked the boxes. Um, most significantly, Dave, uh, you know, there was far less Repsol and much more Honda on these bikes. Uh, well, yes. I mean, you know, Mar- Marcus is gone, so the advertising value is less uh, for Repsol. But on the other hand, it's going to make very little difference to Honda because a lot of the money that came in from Repsol actually went directly into Mark Marcus's bank account. So uh, in the end, I'll probably end up with the same amount of money to actually spend on the project, on the bike and all the rest of it. Um, And yeah, it's a big improvement. I mean, to me, what I liked most about it was the fact that because they're um, Red Bull of gone as well and so uh, and they've prevented anyone from uh, they've prevented any other energy drink from sponsoring uh, Repsol Honda and the, the helmets look fantastic because they actually look uh, you know there's a lot suddenly there's a lot more room to actually create the uh, create a, like a unique helmet design and I think both uh, Luca Marini and Joan Mir their helmets are going to be sort of in, yeah immediately uh, recognizable um, and I wonder whether we'll see a lot of um, replicas because they do look very nice. Spoken like a man who likes his coffee black and without any thrills. <laughs> Ban the energy drinks. Uh, Neil, was there any more humility to the Repsol Honda team launch? I think, you know, you had the, the usual characters, uh, Kuwata-san and also Alberto Puig commenting. There was lots of kind of remarks about restarting, working hard, getting the whole engineering base in Japan, everybody motivated to improve in the whole project. Um, a lot of platitudes as well, the usual kind of stuff from the riders. Luca Marini, uh, again, showing his intelligence by doing most of it in, in Spanish as well. Uh, but you know, not not many revelations apart from like um, the most sort of stubborn livery being changed for a lot more black. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wasn't at the the Repsol launch um, like you. I'd, I'd been blacklisted for slagging off that <laughs> yeah. lack of uh, coffee um, and caffeinated uh, beverages. Um, but yeah, from what I could see of the the presentation that was just recorded there uh, before we started uh, the show, um, yeah, the, the Honda are in no um, they, they're in no doubt as to the kind of predicament they're in, and they're, they're not expecting a quick fix. And I think most of the the comments from the two riders and Alberto Puj and Kuwarasan um, pretty much indicated that. So um, yeah, it's going to be a bit of a slow recovery. Um, I think the bikes look look pretty cool. Um, I think it's probably the most significant livery change um, that a Repsol Honda has had since you know Repsol came is, in as the title sponsor in 1995. So that's uh, that's quite something. And I guess it does in some ways mark the start of this new era, this new chapter for Honda. So it's it's kind of fitting that now, you know, the, the most prized asset is gone. Um, it's kind of fitting that they've got this new kind of color scheme to to go with that. So um, yeah, I, I think they they definitely understand what's ahead of them. But it seems that they're, they're, they've kind of got things in place to, to work in that way, which is uh, definitely a lot more than can be said of Honda a year ago. A quick question. I mean, I'm not sure who of both of you wants to answer, but, you know, Repsol Honda have actually had a special logo type made for their 30th anniversary. And it's quite telling that there is less Repsol on the motorcycles and there is talk in the background of the deal maybe being trimmed a little bit, as you said, you know, previously, Dave, Mark Marcus is not there anymore. Perhaps the media value or the, the whole intrinsic value of the sponsorship arrangement is less. But, you know, there also were rumors that Repsol would not continue their sponsorship already two years ago in MotoGP. Do, do we think, you know, this could be not only a period of transition for Repsol Honda? I think Luca Marini, one of his most telling comments was like, this is a new era uh, for, for HRC. But um, it could very much be a new era for Honda full stop, you know, not just in terms of riders or bike development. Yeah, quite possibly. I think we saw a report on motorsport.com um, sometime towards the end of January, which indicated that there was a bit of tension between uh, Honda or HRC and Repsol behind the scenes. And from what we can gather, it does seem that Repsol have decreased their kind of uh, their spending, as Dave said, to Honda. And uh, HRC thought that would that would then uh, represent a, a kind of smaller bit of their, their fairing size, um, which I don't think Repsol took too kindly to. Um, so yeah, it does seem that there's a little bit of simmering tension behind the scenes. There certainly was coming up to this, uh, this launch in the month that's gone before. Um, so yeah, who knows whether that, uh, that could result in, in, you know, Repsol parting ways. I mean, they're the most valuable Spanish asset um, that they've kind of been behind since 2013. In fact, before that, because um, they were behind Mark in, in both one, two, fives and model two, um, you know, he's departed for, for fresh pastures. So, um, yeah, I guess some of it maybe depends on, on Marquez's movements. If he does come back to Honda in the next couple of years, maybe that'll, that'll keep Repsol in place. Uh, I think there is also another factor, and that's the fact that we've gone to 40% renewables this year, and in 2027 we'll be going to 100% renewables. Um, and MotoGB is just a fantastic laboratory. Um, you've got incredibly extreme circumstances, and it's a great place to be developing stuff. Um, the, there are very few other places for um, companies like Repsol to actually work in very, very extreme circumstances and start developing their fuels. And um, like data, I had a very interesting conversation with someone from uh, Michelin in um, 
um, in Sepang uh, about MotoE, and they were saying like MotoE is really important to them because they uh, because they have these um, tires made from renewable materials uh, and recycled materials. It's just really really important for them. All of the data that they gather in MotoE, and I think that the same is going to be true for Repsol in MotoGP. It's it's really useful. It's really um, uh, this is the kind of data that you cannot get any, uh, anywhere else. Where you're running engines at very very high um, uh, uh, under very high loads under very high stresses, uh, you're pushing the envelope of what your uh, c- combustion can do, of what your fuels can do, uh, and um, for sort of the long term for the future, uh, if Repsol are interested in switching, making the switch to renewable fuels, um, which separate topic, but, um, you know, oil companies around the world have got uh, billions and billions tied up in uh, extraction facilities and oil wells and, the, and all the rest of it. But apart from that, if Repsol see a future for renewable fuels, then MotoGP is one of the best plat- platforms for them to be developing uh, that. We've, we've heard this from Mobile One and KTM. We've heard this from, from other people as well. Yeah, that was another one of the criticisms from the the Repsol Honda launch last year. I mean, aside from being treated like rats, they wanted to chase out the building. You know, they spoke very little about their efforts towards, you know, sustainable and, you know, eco-friendly fuels. Uh, That was something I think was a lot more prevalent in the launch this time. So credit to them for, you know, um, addressing a side of the sport that's going to be much more, I think, in in sort of the narratives of of people both this season and, and the next couple of seasons to come. But uh, but yeah, we've seen the Repsol Honda launch, and um, just a couple of days before. Sorry, Dave, you you want to say something else? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, we have an interview later on uh, in which we talk about renewable fuels, but uh, I shall um, I shall just tease that here, and uh, we'll we'll hear more later. Dave, you're getting all premature again. Um, easy, easy. <laughs> Not for the first time. (laughs) Well, listen, Red Bull KTM also launched their team this week. And uh, maybe in Repsol style, it was uh, very much a case of not much change. Uh, Same riders, same management structure, same livery. Um, Neil, what did we kind of learn, learn really from the presentation? I mean, it was just a couple of minutes online from the Austrians. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we really learned a great deal, to be honest, because, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that Dave was talking to these guys just last week in Sepang um, and speaking to some of the team members as well. And, you know, we got to listen to the, the riders debriefs. So it wasn't a great deal to learn. There was a few chances to, to kind of quiz Jack and, and Brad about certain things that they might have said. Um, but I think the general... Um, the general takeaway is that KTM feel that they're they're ready to fight for the championship this year. Um, you know, last year I think it was clear that the aim was to be at least fighting for the podium at every race weekend and fighting for the top three in the championship. And um, certainly Brad's comments. We spoke to Pit Byer as well, uh, head of motorsports, and um, yeah, he was saying that fighting for the championship is is basically why why they're here this year. You know, it's it's kind of the the next step up. So. Um, Things seem, things seem pretty good there. Um, there's still a couple of things to test. They're not quite race ready just yet. Um, but all indications from Topang were that it was really positive. And, um, you know, I think a year ago, Brad definitely wasn't that positive about some of the testing that they did. Um, he feels that they're certainly a lot closer now. So, um, yeah, that was the that was the sort of the takeaway. Nothing much to report on the, uh, the livery front, sadly. But, um, yeah, that was the sort of takeaway speaking to the riders. 
Yeah, it's a good point about the livery, Neil. And also, Dave, what you were mentioning earlier about the limitations of energy drinks, it seems for Red Bull KTM in particular, there's not really a great deal of room to move away from that color scheme or for the real estate that you know Red Bull need on the RC16. Yeah, I mean, that's why they pay uh, a sizable amount of money to be able to get their stuff plastered all over the uh, all over the place. You know, they um, but it, it, it does tend to dominate because it dominates everything. You know, it dominates the bike, but it also dominates the um, it dominates the helmets. To me, the most annoying thing is that it does actually dominate the rider's helmet, because once you stick a Red Bull logo or even one of those monster claws on, uh, there's not a lot of uh, room left. Uh, I do think that, for example, Red Bull added to the gas gas bike actually looks really nice. That was a uh, th- th- that was a big improvement, I think. Um, but the Red Bull KTM looks exactly like uh, the Red Bull uh, KTM. Um, and I think also one of the reasons that the Red Bull or the, the KTM launch was perhaps less um, newsworthy is because Pip Byer already spoke to us um, after the Gas Gas launch, so he didn't have a, a, a you know a, a great deal to say about it, other than that you know we are getting one step closer to the 2027 regulations, which is going to be less aero, no ride height devices, um, a reduction in capacity, um, and, uh, uh, and that's about it. I probably mentioned this on a previous podcast, but I went to Austria to take part in that video production. And it was amazing to watch the crew plus Brad Binder and Jack Miller spend basically the whole day doing photography and video for what was essentially a two and a half minute production. I mean, it it does blow your mind sometimes when you see behind the scenes of um, creative videos like that. I thought it looked pretty cool um, with the angles and, and, well, the creative expression certainly of it. And one of the... um, the, the kind of end results of being at that shoot is that we have an interview with Brad, uh, you know, on audio format, which we'll play a little bit later in the podcast. But uh, speaking of audio and interviews of another sort, Dave, you managed to sit down with Sebastian Risa, who from the very beginning, I think he was actually one of the chief architects of the Moto3 race program for KTM when they started back in 2011 and went into the 2012 season and took victory straight away of Rebel KTM Ayo and Sandra Cortesi. He's been you know, prominent all the way through the project um, and development with the RC16, building things up, not just at the racetrack itself, because he's at every Grand Prix, but behind the scenes in in Mundafing, where KTM had their Motorsports HQ. And you grabbed him at the Sepang Test. And before we play it for our listeners, just give us a quick sort of scene setting. Uh, Where were you and what did you really want to quiz him about? Well, we were in the... uh, um, Sepang at the back of the pit boxes, they had these little sort of break rooms, which are quite nice. And we were sitting in there, but I think at some point someone came in and started making coffee. So there might be a little <laughs> bit of a, a sound of a uh, of someone frothing some milk in the background. But um, and you uh, no, cursing it, profusely. Yeah, I was I was cursing under my breath. You can't hear it, <laughs> um, but it was um, it, it was very interesting. What I wanted to know was okay, so we're switching to. Um, we're switching to renewable fuels. How does that affect, you know, will it affect it this year? What does it affect in 2027? How does it affect the design process? Um, and Sebastian was very, very uh, interesting uh, about this. Um, interesting also about sort of like the project and, and, and how it is going forward. So, yeah, I I always enjoy talking to, 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 to Clever Seb, as we, um, uh, as we call him. Um, so, yes, very much enjoyed it. Uh, here's the interview right now. I'm here with uh, Sebastian Risse. Um What is your title exactly? You're basically head of um, 
the MotoGP project for KTM. Exactly, yes. So I'm the technical manager of the MotoGP team and uh, I'm working for both teams, uh, also including Gaskas. Yeah. Uh, the, I suppose that the, the, one of the big changes we've seen this year is with e-fuels. Now, I spoke to someone from Mobile One in the US, uh, Austin, last year, and that was very, very interesting. Um, 40% of her e-fuels... Uh, when I asked Corrado Ceccanelli about it, he said that he doesn't expect there to be a big difference. But one of the things that I've noticed here is everyone seems to be working on electronics. Now, everyone is always working on electronics. But is um, uh, how big has the change been for you, and have you had to do anything extra? To be honest, I think, uh, of course, uh, the practical handling of the fuel is a little bit different depending on the fuel specs. Also, if something like the e-fuel wouldn't have been introduced so if you change supply you have to readapt a little bit but uh, the main work was really in the engine department uh, and at the suppliers that were developing these fuels so in the background there's been a lot of work going on for us on the track uh, it didn't change so much because these guys did a really good job okay i mean did, did it take a lot of work to adapt the engine because the combustion is going to be not hugely different, but slightly different. And so you've got to, uh, you know, change the combustion, combustion, uh, combustion chamber shapes, all those sort of things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's coming from both sides, of course. Um, but finally, we have a solution that uh, mechanically didn't really require changes, but you need to redo all your mapping, all your dyno work, um, the detailed uh, thermodynamic uh, setup of this engine. So it's more this area that you... Okay, I mean, it's... Could you give any details about, or not not details about the, the sort of the difference? How do, does this fuel burn differently, or does it take more energy to ignite, or um, is it still very similar? That is, I would say that starts with a strategic decision between the manufacturer and the fuel supplier. So they really design fuel for the properties we need, and this is why I cannot go into detail because this was our decision together with them. Right. How our solution looks. How yeah. others look, we don't know. Yeah, exactly. So basically, it's it's real partnership rather than... A, Absolutely. So yeah, you're, you're, yes. you're, I mean, you, they used to say that you you know, you, des you start the design of the bike sort of with the uh, with the crankshaft where that's going to be and then design the rest of it around it. Now you've got to do It starts uh, in a meeting between the crankshaft designer and the, and the, fuel, uh, <laughs> and the fuel supply sort of thing. <laughs> well, not quite, but... You know, you have to decide uh, between different priorities. Yeah. Uh, to give you some examples, you can just look for the peak performance. You can look for rideability. Yeah. You can look for um, a high energy, which gives you a lot of energy to use over the race distance, but doesn't automatically make the bike faster for the ultimate lap time. You can look at the density versus the volume or versus the weight. The yeah. volume is where we restrict it. Yeah. Uh, the weight is something that you always carry and it penalizes you in a way. So it's really strategic what you have to decide first. Right, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating. And will you have to go through this process again uh, for 2027? I mean, you'll have to go through the process anyway because the engine capacity is going to change and the engine design is going to change. Um, uh, the combustion chamber uh, is going to change. You know, the, the shape is going to change. So, um, 
so in a way it's a good it's a good time to change in 2027 yes of course i mean you catch uh, many flies at once if yeah. you have to do the job nice. once but it's also clear that this process is not a one-off and then you're done it's a continuous aware decision how to set your priorities where to find the best compromise in this kind of areas and it is not the last um, engine calibration you're doing i mean how many we are doing during a season in the development to find the specification of the next year it's the engine dyno is always running yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um the, the other big thing about uh, or the other big change you made last year was switching from the steel chassis, which I think was also 3D printed, to a carbon fiber um, uh, frame. And that seems to be extremely successful because the riders are very, very positive about it. Um, I remember we had a conversation once. I asked you about, you know, well, why do you make the, the, the swing arm out, uh, out of carbon? And you said it's because once you have the shape, then you could, it gives you much more flexibility in, in changing and, uh, and, and adapting the, uh, the, the stiffness and all the rest of it. Is this the reason for, for, for going for carbon fiber? I mean, there's many reasons. Of course, there's plus and minus for every solution. I think what really drove us into this area is uh, that in the last years, we have developed uh, a lot of knowledge in this technology. And this made that decision uh, quite similar to the previous decision to go steel because we were specialists in this area. We uh, were convinced um, we can beat others in this. And this is why we focused on this aspect. Now we have spent a lot of efforts to develop the carbon fiber technology to find, let's say, a philosophy in the design to understand how you need to design things to use them well. We have partnerships with suppliers, um, with other technology leaders that finally put us into the position where we thought um, we can really be ahead of the game in this area and we see the potential also based on examples like you say the swing arm on the fork on the suspension wp belongs to uh, the pira group just as us um, so also there's a, a joint in technology and know-how and uh, every area where we introduced this technology finally we made a step forward if it was just for weight or if it was for other behavior uh, so we were very keen to explore this we run like a pilot project um, and this was uh, giving us a lot of insight and gave a lot of positive comments and data so we were going deeper and deeper and finally in a quite short lead time arrived at a point where we could test with the race riders uh, in Misano and um, yeah then we decided to race it in Smotegi yeah, exactly, and it's been extremely, it's been extremely successful. And like I say, when you talk to the riders, uh, even Pedro Acosta, um, he got a chance to ride the thing, and he was quite positive about it. So it does seem to be a step forward. It's interesting you said about WP because WP also used a lot of um, carbon fiber to make fork tubes and that sort of thing, and that and that is a transferable technology throughout the Pyramid Mobility Group. That's that's what you're saying, basically. I mean, the detailed technology is different for every part you're doing because carbon fiber design has to really be done for the load case that you expect. And, uh, of course, when you look, for example, at the outer tube, it has to be of a certain shape. Yeah. Um, so the production process is quite different. 
but we know the people that know how to make those processes yeah <laughs> and they can also make other processes yeah exactly yeah 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 it's it, it it's understanding how to do it is the is the key piece of knowledge and then it's just learning the data the fine detail sort of thing um i remember finally about testing i remember um after the portimao test last year uh things just on the timesheets, didn't look particularly promising. I, I remember getting a lot of stick for not mentioning Jack Miller uh, in my season preview because there are too many riders to mention. And then Jack went and had a fantastic start, uh, start of the season. Um, how do you... I mean, it does feel like you have a process that you run through uh, and it's not necessarily related to lap times at a particular point in, in testing. I mean, every year we learn something and the longer we're doing this, the more I believe it's about work as hard as you can, as get as much done as you can and then put it together for the first race. Especially when you get a new rider, which you cannot judge in this moment how big this difference is between his racing mentality versus his... Um, approach in the testing how much he relies on just uh, to make a step or how much he needs to put it together already in the test mm -hmm. to have the confidence there yeah? uh, i think this is what we saw last year but i 100 percent believe this also this year it does not matter where we will be in the timesheets we will have to be happy with our work and with the progress yeah. convinced of the progress we made and then in the first race we will see do you think also like the lack of testing time that we have now means that it makes test results much more difficult to re read because uh, people are, uh, you don't have very many test tires. You can't throw tires uh, um, easily to make a fast time. Um, there's less in-season testing. There's Testing is much more restricted. And so you have to work, focus much more on finishing, you know, getting through the list of stuff that you need to do, understanding the things that you need to understand. Uh, and you're prepared to sacrifice sort of, you know, that single fast lap at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. I think depending uh, the strategy you're running in this test, how much you focused on, say, in the development ultimate lap time or in the development or end of race performance versus how much you're testing that is compromising the chance to even make a lap time. Uh, I would say there's half second to one second just in this decision. And that's something you don't see in the timesheets. Finally, two last questions. Firstly, Pedro Acosta. Um, everyone I've spoken to about has been extremely impressed with him. Um, how have you spoken to him? Have you worked with him? Have you? What, what's your impression been so far? No, absolutely. It's really impressive uh, how quick he's learning, how quick he's absorbing everything that you put to him. And... Um, yeah, at the moment, he's like a, a white sheet, very neutral to all the aspects of the bike, um, trying to learn from the best of each aspects. And uh, up to now, it goes rather very easy for him to do this difficult process. So we are very, very curious uh, what happens in the next days. Because you've had a lot of rookies in the past couple of years. Uh, but so none like this, no. that is clear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, finally, are you going to win the championship this year? I mean, 
I wouldn't have asked you this at the beginning of, of, of last season because things were looking, you know, it didn't look that way. And yet you had a really successful year with Brad finishing fourth and really making life difficult for the Ducatis. But do you think you're going to be closer? Well, I mean, we work on this every moment of our life at the moment. So uh, we will see how far it brings us. Uh, I'm sure we can make a step. How much of a step the others do is not in our hands and we don't know. But I think the first races will tell already uh, if you have a chance. And if you have it, we will try to grab it. Okay. Thank you very much. Nice one, Dave. Uh, before we crack on, Fly Racing has long been one of the most innovative manufacturers of off-road safety equipment and technology. The Fly Racing Formula helmet is one of the most advanced motocross helmets ever created. Tested on the most advanced equipment in the world, the Formula helmet's overall performance is the best in its class for both high-velocity crashes as well as rotational and low-speed impacts thanks to the adaptive impact system. The Americans now have the Formula S on the market. S means smart and it contains a sensor that can automatically contact emergency services in the event of a crash. Lots more potential also thanks to the hardware and software configuration. Check out flyracing.com for more details on the Formula S. Right, straight into our Q&A questions now. Uh, as I mentioned, we've got an interview with Brad Binder coming up again later. So uh, before we get into that, let's uh, hear what some of the people wanted to know from us. Firstly, um, Tom Groom, um, he says the excitement for the 2024 season builds, and it seems like it's going to be a good one with lots of talking points. He's worrying, not worrying or asking or wondering about the internal dynamics of the Yamaha team. Do we see Fabio or Alex Rins better place to lead development of the bike? Neil, your first thoughts on this one? I think it's a really good question. Um, I think naturally you would say it's Fabio because he's been in that team now since 2021. Uh, been with Yamaha since 2029. He has a clearer idea of what the bike should and shouldn't be doing um, compared with Alex Rins. However, for me, I think the, a bit of a doubt remains as to Fabio's proper development um, capacity. Um, we did hear at the end of last year that Cal Crutchlow had advised both Fabio and Franco Morbidelli to take a different route with the engine choice ahead of the 2023 season, which they ignored. I think Cal warned them that the 23 engine was too peaky, too aggressive. It wasn't the direction to go in, yet Quadraro and, and Morbidelli chose that one and then basically complained for you know the best part of 10, 12, 14 races that the, the engine had had become kind of unmanageable. Um and you know, I think for, for Fabio, there's a in the past there's been a bit of a rush to kind of get back to just what we know. Um rather than trying to explore other paths of what's available. Alex Rins was always commended um, during his time at Suzuki for his ability to kind of test parts and to kind of evaluate them in quite an effective way. Um, and I think that's why Honda made such a blunder letting them kind of slip through their fingers because I think Rins had proven kind of capacity to, to develop a, a bike and showed that at Suzuki. So I think it's it's quite an interesting um, little uh, little formula there that they've got at Yamaha. I did notice that I think they did an interview with motorsport.com or Fabio did an interview with motorsport.com in Sepang, said that him and Rins um, spoke more during the Sepang test than him and Mobadeli did in four years as kind of teammates. So it seems that there's a, you know, kind of a decent vibe between them at the moment. And that can only be a benefit um, to Yamaha as, as a whole. But yeah, it's, it is interesting because I think Fabio is obviously a brilliant rider. 
we know that, but the one thing he's improved, unproven at is is kind of his his proper development capacity, I think. And, and Rint has shown that ability in the past. So let's see how this goes. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely the vibe that I got in Sepang as well, talking to Mario Marigali, uh, which we had the interview, I think, on last week's show uh, as well. Um they were very impressed with the way that Rins worked. Uh, I think also another advantage we have now, or your Yamaha have now, is the fact that uh, I think Rins and Quattararo were a much more balanced pair. When Morbidelli was in the factory Yamaha team, he was very much second fiddle to Fabio Quattararo. Quattararo was clearly better. He beat him just about every single uh, session. Um, towards the end, Morbidelli started finding some finding some speed. But I mean, now it really looks like um, you know Rince is going to be able to push Quattararo. Um, his feedback was prized. Uh, just the, you know all of the stuff that he was able to tell them. Uh, his riding is very good. He was just very very good at. Um, helping the project. So I think he's in the. Um, uh, uh, I think he, he's going. He's definitely an upgrade on Morbidelli. Not not to say anything bad about Morbidelli, but um, in terms of what Yamaha need right now, they have much more for. Uh, you know, Alex Rins is going to be much more useful. And just to come to your point, Neil, about um, uh, Honda letting Alex Rins go, I think you know the fact that Alex Rins left opened up a. Um, the door for Joan Zarco. I think Joan Zarco is quite useful as well. Um, it is Rince better. I don't know, but I think you know the the biggest thing that uh, Honda have gained is, is is of course Luca Marini, who just everyone you spoke to about about Marini was just really impressed with the clarity of his feedback, the way that he was able to give you really clear. Uh, and be able to prioritize, be able to say, right, this is what we need to fix now, then move on to the next thing, then move on to the next thing. Yeah, and just quickly going back to Rins, I think um, Simon Crifar was saying uh, during the Samhang test that he had spoken to some of Rins' engineers and they were amazed at his braking ability. And we know that Fabio's braking ability is what stands out in his riding. And they were saying that, you know what, Rins can actually kind of match Fabio in that regard. So um, I think it's that is, is definitely a positive thing for Yamaha. Still on the subject of Yamaha, uh, Mark B sent a question saying, you know, generally from the Sepang test, things seem to have improved. I mean, Yamaha were faster. Um, do we think that the test has pushed Fabio more towards staying or leaving, or is it too early to know? Dave? Uh, the, I mean, the vibe I got was very much that Fabio was much more optimistic than he was at the end of last year. Um I went to Zapang thinking it, this was going to be make or break for uh, for, for Quattararo. Um, I think I, I came away from there thinking that you know Fabio hasn't made a decision to stay, but he has de- he has postponed a decision to leave. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair point. Um, I think Fabio's comments were were generally positive, and I think an important thing for both him and for Yamaha is that his his uh, ambitions and ex- expectations for this year seem to be a bit more realistic. Last year, obviously, on the back of 2022, he was coming into the year thinking, "We're, you know, we haven't fixed the bike, but I want to be fighting for the championship." This year, there seems to be an acceptance that they need to kind of prioritize position before they can start thinking about wins. And he was saying, I think, on one of the days at Sepang that, you know, he hopes to be fighting for the top six at the start of the year. 
and then it's about kind of climbing the order as the year develops. He's not really imagining him fighting for the victory at Qatar or Portimao or Texas in the first uh, you know quarter of the season. So I think that's a very important thing. He seems to be a lot more mature in how he's approaching the season. Um, and yeah, the bike still seems quite far away from where it needs to be. But I think he was definitely impressed by Yamaha's aggressive kind of hiring policy and how the new figures that they've hired from Ducati, Max Bartolini, the new technical director in particular, uh, the effect that that's had on the on the kind of approach that Yamaha has taken. So, um, yeah, definitely I would agree with Dave. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not, um, he certainly not decided to stay, but um, yeah, I think there's positive signs that could convince him still to stay. Dave, is it also the case where, you know, if Fabio looks over the garden fence at the state of the garden on the other side, I mean, there might not be that many other desirable options. Perhaps he could become an HRC rider and put another million euros in his bank account. But then, you know, where does that leave him? I mean, I think it's as much about the the market and the field and the opportunities for Quattararo, uh, you know, compared to what he has at Yamaha currently. Yeah, I mean, it is that little... Um... It reminds me, you know those little puzzles you get where there's one square missing and you have to shift all of the squares around? That's very much how the the, the rider market feels. And, you know, Fabio Quattraro is going to look and he's going to look at what other factories are doing. Um, KTM looks full up. You know, Brad Binder is signed up. And that second seat, if... Uh, if if KTM decide to get rid of Jack, then the person they move in it will be Pedro Acosta. So, you know, like KTM are full. Um, Ducati are going to sign Pekka Bagnaia very soon. Um, I suspect that there will be an announcement possibly at the Qatar test or possibly shortly afterwards. Um, then you've got that other seat, but you've got Jorge Martin going for it. You've got Anaya Bastianini who look quite good going for it. Uh, you know, maybe Mark Marquez. Maybe Mark Marquez goes there. Um, maybe someone else comes off uh, uh, comes off there. Maybe uh, Juan Mir says, I fancy a go uh, on a Ducati. So there's lots and lots of uh, different options available uh, for uh, for riders to go. So, so. That really only leaves Aprilia, and Aprilia is a really interesting one. Um, I think you know we could see you know, one or both riders go. We know the, that uh, Miguel Oliveira really wants to get on a factory uh, uh, on a factory Aprilia, um, but there's lots of other options. Dave, are you talking about puzzles with holes just because you've assembled your new laptop and it's still working? <laughs> Exactly. I, I, I can't tell you how my, my little geek heart is just delighted. Well, listen, it's good that you mentioned Aprilia because uh, Joe Camacho sent us a question saying, are there any signs that Aprilia are getting frustrated with Maverick Vinales' performance? Um, and if Alessia Spargaro decides to retire in 2024, then what will the factory team look like next year? Neil? Yeah, it's another interesting question. Um, I mean, there's no obvious signs, I would say, that they're becoming frustrated and impatient with Maverick and the kind of lack of results. Um, I think one of the great things that Massimo Revol has managed to do is to create an environment which really seems to be friendly and, and you know, comforting to, to kind of riders, especially riders with a slightly, uh, what's the right word? Uh, challenging yeah. personality. Yeah, that's exactly, that's the diplomatic way of putting it. Yeah, slightly challenging perspective on how to do things. Um, but I would imagine behind the scenes that, that there has to be some some consternation that that there hasn't been a a massive improvement, and that there is this kind of 
just kind of innate ability to basically snatch uh, defeat from the jaws of victory, um, like we saw so many times last year. So I would say that Aprilia are certainly looking um, at other options. And obviously, it could be two riders that they might have to be looking for if Elise does to indeed decide to hang up his letters at the end of this year. Um, but um, yeah, I, I saw one or two reports that uh, Enea Bastianini could be on a Aprilia's radar. I guess you would have to be looking at Fabio Quattararo if you had anything about you, if you were Aprilia as well. Um, yeah, and then of course Miguel Oliveira, who I think has done enough in his you know year as a satellite Aprilia rider to prove that he could be you know a, a very capable man to to lead a factory's fortunes. So I would say that those are three riders that that they're bound to be looking at um, and. Yeah, no, no clear signs from what we can see, I think, of frustration at, at Maverick. Um, but I would have to say that they'll surely be invoiced whenever the, the kind of the bosses are, are meeting behind the scenes. Yeah, from what I've seen, I think Aprilia have been extremely supportive. I think they see Vinales' potential. Um, but then, Dave, you were sort of listening to his media debrief at the Sepang test and things are still not going too swimmingly with the the 24 configuration for the Spaniard. I mean, he was talking about, I think, difficulty in braking. There was some reason why he wasn't able to make the lap time. And as we know, Maverick tends to be the king of the tests. So that's a little bit of a worrying sign. But then he was sort of dispelling the idea of any panic by saying we still have two days in Qatar. And he was quite assured that he was going to get things ready. And when it comes to Aprilia overall, let's not forget they added two riders that only really have experience of KTM technology in the Premier class. I mean, Neil, if they do bring in someone like Inea Bastianini, then they could perhaps get some of that Ducati um, knowledge and experience as well to, to further improve the motorcycle. That has to be, I mean, we have a question kind of on this a little bit later, but if you bring in someone from another manufacturer, then you're also getting that kind of knowledge. And I think that's also what KTM appreciated so much from Jack Miller and of course his crew is that when he came in, he was able to bring some different kind of processes to the KTM RC16, which they hadn't really had before. I mean, you only had uh, Joanne Zarka who came in to bring some, what, some knowledge from a, a satellite Yamaha and that was it. So, uh, you know, Miller worth more than just the results, you know, it would seem just for the development of the project overall. Yeah, I mean, the, the development is just incredibly important. Just having someone in who, can, who can give you feedback and give you pointers and say, this is what you need to be prioritizing about. Um, I did have a, a, a private conversation with a senior figure in a rival factory. And um, they were, um, I mean, their point was basically what, what we've said as well which is um, that Maverick Vinales is incredibly talented. He just has this amazing potential, um, but he never seems to be able to put it all together. He just seems to be too... Um, he doesn't have the mental strength, the mental uh, ability to actually put something together to actually challenge, uh, challenge for a championship in MotoGP. He always seems to find a way to trip himself up. So I, I, I think he is... Um, I think his position is... Um, vulnerable, and it, a lot is going to happen. Is going to depend on what happens with Alicia Spargo. Alicia seems uh, still seems quite, you know, he's quite happy. He's quite competitive. He is uh, heading towards retirement. I wonder what because he'll occasionally he'll have little chats with his brother Paul, and like Paul was very was quite upset last year when he lost his uh, when he lost his ride. Um, but I had a brief uh, little chat with him, and he was saying like. Um, uh, Yes, he missed the race, but then he, he he remembered just the stress 
it was so stressful. Modern MotoGP right now is so incredibly stressful because you know you you make one mistake at the beginning of uh, of the season and that's it. You know your season's pretty much over, um, and you have to be on it right from Friday morning. The, then you've got the sprint race, then you've got the main race, and it, it it's just so incredibly stressful that actually being able to step back from that can be quite a pain. And we know that, you know, Alicia's a big cyclist. He might actually fancy having um, having a little bit more time to spend with his beloved bicycle. On the subject of riders and returners at KTM, we have some special interview audio with Brad Binder. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, uh, you know, I was at the, the studio and the photo shoot and um, this went towards one of the TV interviews that was distributed to various channels afterwards, but um, we thought it might be quite cool to play it here in the podcast. So um, here's our, a little chat with Brad Binder. Brad, 11th, 6th, 6th and 4th. So is 2024 the moment of truth? Well, uh, 2024 for me is going to be a big season for sure. Um, like, like we just said, you know, the trajectory is on its way up, 11th, 6th, 6th and 4th. So, uh, yeah, I have no doubt we're going to do better than 4th. Um, last season was great at times, but extremely difficult on other days too. And, uh, yeah, I felt like we had more in the pocket and we could have achieved more. So a little bit, uh, it, it's always good to go into the off-season still hung, well, really hungry and wanting to achieve a lot more. And that's how I felt this year. So for me, it's, it's awesome to be starting 2024 and I'm um, looking forward to getting back on the bike. Ten years now with KTM. Tell us some of the reasons why this relationship has gone on for so long. What's been the reason for creating that special blend with the group? Uh, basically, it's been 10 seasons I've already been with. Well, it's going to be my 10th season. I've been, in, uh, been racing for Red Bull KTM Factory Racing. And um, it's been an amazing, an amazing, uh, how can I call it, amazing journey. Um, you know, we have, we have had great times together. We have had days which have been uh, amazing. We've had days that have been super tough and times that have been hard, but we've always stuck together and uh, we've always had the same goal in mind. And so I think we fit really well together. And uh, yeah, I'm so happy where I am. And now the only thing left is to to try and finish the job off in MotoGP. Obviously, I have a lot more experience now. I understand things much better. I think I'm quite a lot calmer, for sure. I uh, understand what I'm doing and how to go fast rather than just try and uh, go crazy and see what happens. But um, yeah, you know, if I look back and I think, well, to see where I am now 10 years ago, I think, uh, you know, I would, would be super stoked if I could uh, look into the future back then. So. I'm really happy about that, but um, like I said, there's a lot of work still to do, and uh, let's try to finish the job off. You're going to have 44 races next year. Give us an assessment of how tough 2023 was physically and mentally, and do you feel the preparation and the changes you made for last season will you know, help you for this year? I feel like 2023 for us was a breakthrough year. You know, I think things were very static for us 2021, 2022. And then last season, we made a huge step forward. The bike was way more competitive. Um, we were fighting up front most weekends. We were always around that podium battle. Uh, managed to win a couple sprint races. So I felt like that was a good step for us. For me, it was clear that we still needed to work in some key areas. 
But other than that, I was really happy because I felt like we were starting to, starting to achieve uh, or be racing more at the sharp end where we need to be. So that was great for us. But this season is where I think we can make the difference. What about you personally, Brad? I mean, how difficult was it to adapt to the new sprint format last year and then also face an enlargement of that program for this season? Well, the, with our new, our new schedule over a weekend, it's so important to start strong already on a Friday morning because uh, by the time Saturday comes, you know, you're qualifying Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon, you've got to be ready to race. And um, that's something I think we actually did much, much, much better than expected. Uh, the sprint races worked really well for us where I think I went into last season thinking that that might be the tricky part. Um, you know, for me at this whole new schedule, I really enjoy it. I, I love racing and I'd rather race than have a, a session just to go cruise around and check things. So, um, yeah, I, I love the sprint races. I'm really happy to have the 44 races. For me, it's, it's great. It's what I enjoy. It's what I love doing. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Can you talk a bit about the respect that you have for, for the motorcycle, uh, but also for the whole team, the whole group of engineers behind it? Because it's obviously it's a perilous sport, but then they're making something that's not only competitive, but also durable, reliable, dependable for you. Can you just talk about that sort of section of your profession? You know, I think uh, MotoGP or bike racing in general, it's, it looks like almost a, a, a one-man sport when you're on the grid and you're all lining up, but it's such a massive team effort behind the scenes. You know, in the box, uh, the guys are, are working to find every last little bit back at the factory. The guys are working tirelessly as well. And it's, it's actually so impressive when you sit back and you look at the bigger picture and you see all these things coming and all the updates and all the understanding behind it and why they're doing things. And, you know, I, I love my team. I have the most incredible crew behind me I could ever ask for. And, uh, you know, all the guys are just, they're all flat out all the time. We all have the same goal in mind and uh, we're never happy unless we're on top. So not, not too often last season, unfortunately. Brad, um, on the track, it's incredibly tough, it's close and competitive. How do you kind of keep the respect for the rivals and the people around you? It must be, because you have an enviable lifestyle. Fans see you, they see what you do, they see the rewards it can bring. But how do you sort of still find the rapport with people to be able to go and say, like have a barbecue together or just to be able to hang out post-race and talk? How, how is that dynamic? Uh, for me, I don't know really, I don't really worry about it or think about it at all. Um, for me, I, uh, I look at myself as a person that's quite okay on a motorbike. I'm not bad at racing a motorbike, but other than that, I'm uh, completely normal. So just like everyone else on the grid. So um, yeah, I, uh, I really enjoy what I do. I love MotoGP and I feel like I'm the luckiest man in the world to have this job. And, uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, I, I think I like more, well, just as much as anybody to go hang out with friends, have a good time and, uh, yeah, you know, go for a barbecue, hang out with the people and normal stuff. Is it quite easy for you to step outside the bubble, you know, to, to realise what you do for a job and, and your life and your passion? I mean, you said there you feel you're lucky. Do you get a <clears throat> chance to appreciate that and to really realise it? 
You know, I think sometimes when uh, things aren't going the way you, you want them to over a race weekend in particular, it's easy to kind of forget about how lucky you are and how grateful you, you actually need to be to be doing what I am doing. You know, I think MotoGP is, is a dream and uh, you sometimes forget that, okay, you're where you are now and you want so much more and you keep striving and fighting to get there but you've come a long way too. And if you look back, like we spoke earlier, 10 years to now, it's uh, quite a difference. So it, it's crazy how things can change. But uh, yeah, of course, for me, I, I uh, have two types of my life. I find that when I'm in, in Europe and racing, I'm super professional. I do everything extremely well. I try to sleep well, eat well, do everything properly. Whereas I find it really important to have a couple of weeks in the off season, you know, over December to just really sit back and, uh, you know, just do whatever I feel like doing. Just try to forget about bikes completely. And after five or six days, you start to realize how lucky you are to have this job again and how uh, you're ready to get back because, you know, it's, so, so ex it's such an exciting sport and exciting life. And, Everything we do is for ourselves. You know, you train hard, you get more, you do something better, you find something new. You know, it only improves and you can just keep building from there. So it's something that I really enjoy. And it's a life that, uh, yeah, it's the only real life I know and uh, enjoy. Brad, can you explain to fans who see Q1 and Q2 split by milliseconds? I mean, what's it like to live in that those kind of parameters? Because it's barely comprehensible. Uh, also, how do you get back to the pit box and think, well, I need, you know, less than a tenth to be able to make this step. I mean, it doesn't seem quite understandable. How do you work it out? For me, when you, it's happened, I don't know how many times over my MotoGP career where you've come in and you're in 11th position. So you uh, just missed the cut and you 0.3 to first. And you know over the lap, oh, geez, I missed this apex or I was too deep on the brakes in that corner. And then you like, you know exactly where that time was. And um, you know, okay, I could have done it, but this is what I did wrong. And those are the good days. The bad days is when you ride and you felt like you do everything perfect. And all of a sudden, oh, damn, I'm 11th or 12th. And you know, you, you're looking for that last little bit. But, um, you know, 0.3 sounds like nothing. But when you need to do that lap after lap, it's super hard to find. And uh, nowadays in MotoGP, it's crazy how close things are. And uh, I try not even look at the screens because when you see the gaps and stuff, it's just, you know, you need to go faster. Even if you first going into your last run, you could land up in the Q1. So you need to improve every single session because everybody is. So for me, the biggest thing I learned this season was you have to make every single lap count and use every opportunity. Otherwise, there's a very good chance it's not going to work in your favor. Lastly, we talk just about 10 years of Red Bull KTM factory racing, but it's been a whole career of racing, competing. Where does that kind of instinct come from, do you think, within you? I mean, how does it keep enduring? How do you come back year after year and still have that same urge? It's something, again, something that's quite unusual for most people to understand. For me, it's uh, racing's been my entire life. Since I was small, that's all I've ever really loved and enjoyed, and uh, it's what I like to do. And especially when you have time off, you realize how much you enjoy it and how much you really want to do it. So for me, it's, it's always been something that I 
really enjoy the process, the whole process of what I do. I, I love the preseason. I love the training. The you know getting out on your bicycle, stupid early in the morning, and you know having a gym in the gym session in the afternoon, trying to get the bike ready to go riding. Like all of that stuff is stuff I really enjoy. And um, yeah, for me, it's just really trying to improve, just get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better to try and get to the end goal, which is obviously to be a world champion. Okay, back to the last few questions we had from Patreon. But first, uh, Dave, you had some sort of thoughts on the, on the Binder interview? Well, you said that you were quite impressed by the amount of time, uh, you know, that all four of the uh, of the KTM riders, you know, they, they spend all day just hanging around the the, the factory in Mundelfing in um, uh, uh, in Austria, and that's why they get paid a lot of money. The reason that MotoGP riders get paid a lot of money is to do all those sort of things. They would ride around on a motorbike for free. Um, it's all that media nonsense that uh, <laughs> they uh, that they absolutely detest, which is no fun, and which is what an incredibly important part of their job because you know that's what brings the money in you know that's what brings the money in uh, to pay for them but it's also quite notable that um uh, i understand that mark marquez um has been his deal at grassini is that he won't have any media responsibilities beyond the normal debriefs you know he won't have to do uh, i don't know whatever it is three or four one to ones every uh, every thursday at every race it'll just be uh, whatever red bull decide that he needs to do he'll do and he'll the, the rest of the time he'll just have free to work on the bike to you know work on himself and work on all the other things so um he might have given up a lot of money but he's gained a lot of freedom dave you're not freelancing for repsol this year are you <laughs> I wish free petrol that'd be great that would actually genuinely be great free petrol you'd be lucky if they let you on the forecourt <laughs> they usually don't you might get you might get an espresso if you're lucky <laughs> yeah <laughs> if I was really lucky Rudy Batsell says that uh, mass damper development how important is it and where are the other manufacturers in developing their own technology to catch up with Ducati? Dave, this is very much a question for you. Uh, this is genuinely a really interesting question and one that I don't have a ready answer to. What I do think is because, you know, we all got very excited about uh, mass dampers when they first turned up. Um, it, the point about a mass damper is you have it in the tail uh, and it, it, it basically slows the reaction of the rear of the bike. It reduces uh, rear pumping. We've seen mass dampers appear on other bikes. Um, uh, I'm not sure that the K I don't think the KTM has one. The Aprilia has one. Uh, the, the Repsol Honda has one now. Um, but... <laughs> It's one of those things where you, you've got lots and lots of compromises. The other thing is we've saw we've we've seen the size of the tail on the Ducati get smaller over the years. So for for Ducati, that's a sign that for Ducati, it's become less important as other aspects of the bike become more important. Um, uh, I think the, the the gains that they've made from ride height devices uh, and from aero have cancelled out some of that, and also. Um, the thing about aero is it, in, it induces load. If you've ever, so this is a bit of a weird uh, uh, sort of comparison. There is um, to get round to um, uh, to get round into my garden, into my back garden. I, there's a very narrow, uh, tight little alleyway which I have to uh, cycle through. We have to cycle around, and the way that I go that I cycle around it 
is by using the back brake because the back brake in introduces some tension into the in, in, into the chassis, into the frame of the bike, into the feeling of the bike, um, and it makes it it sort of ironically makes it easier to handle the bike. Um, I think. My theory is that this aero is doing the same thing with a MotoGP bike. It's introducing more tension into the bike, and it's actually adding stability. We know that the bikes are much more stable. Um, uh, you know, also we've got the aero on the rear. All that is just stabilizing the rear that much more, and so it's actually reducing the importance of the mass damper. If you see what I mean, Dave, I don't believe a word you say until Peter Bomb comes around to your house and tries to cycle <laughs> around the whole building. Recording data on his way. Uh, well, to be honest, he does he does occasionally pop round and get his bicycle and then go cycling in the uh, uh, cycling up the Dutch mountain here. There's um, there's some excellent mountain bike uh, paths up there. Well, Rudy, I hope that kind of went some way to answering your question. But it's a big subject, so maybe we can tackle it again a little bit later in the season, um, especially if we see any uh, new tech hovering around in the pit lane at all. Uh, Neil, this is a special question for you because I know you're such a big Swifty. Um, DJ Purchase says, is there a chance that Taylor Swift breaks up with her current boyfriend, dates a MotoGP star, increasing both US attention as well as female enthusiasm for the sport, thereby saving the motorcycle industry? I don't think there's any tongue in cheek there. I think, you know, there's a very serious uh, strand going on. Yeah, shout out to DJ Purchase, one of our, uh, one of our patrons. Um, it's a, I mean, it is something that I think MotoGP organizers would, would absolutely love and fall over themselves to, to have a situation like that. I, I'm not an NFL fan at all. I have no interest whatsoever in the Super Bowl. Um, but any news items that I saw relating to the Super Bowl on Monday were just photos of basically Taylor Swift, um, either in the stands watching or like hugging her boyfriend after the game had finished. Um, so, you know, the NFL with a massive kind of profile in the States was basically trying to squeeze that, uh, that Taylor, uh, profile for all it was worth. Um, and yeah, I guess having a kind of figure like that, um, would, uh, would, would, would be an attractor for the, the Swifties out there, which I think are quite numerous, and quite, uh, quite, um, outspoken as well. Um, bring back Paris Hilton is what I say, um, who obviously had her own, one two five team, I think, back in the day with Maverick Vinales. It wasn't. It wasn't hers. Basically, what it was, it was a link up. Uh, she was a, uh, a an influence influencer avant la lettre for I think Pasha uh, the uh, the the nightclub on uh, yeah the night the nightclub on one of the Balearic Islands and uh, and so she was uh, basically sort of signed up for. Uh, uh, to, to turn up at races from time to time, and um, yeah, so we used to, used to see Paris Hilton on the grid. That worked very well. Was this before or after the video? Oh, we were after. No, it was, it was definitely after. It was definitely after. I had to think about which video you had there for a moment, <laughs> but um, that's uh, it's been such a long time. I was reading that the apparently like 123 million people watched the Super Bowl between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. And it's the largest TV audience ever in, in US history. And that's across all platforms. And, you know, it always is. It, yeah. it, it, it always is. It's always the biggest TV show. I mean, it's a shame uh, Steve couldn't join us uh, because, you know, this is very much his um, uh, very much his jam. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's the it's the biggest TV uh uh, sort of event of the of the year, but then if you look at TV ratings, I think NFL games are so, you know of, of the top ten most popular uh, TV programs of any weekend. Eight 
eight of them will be NFL games. Well, it's quite staggering that some experts are attributing part of this audience increase. I think it's up by over 10 million people compared to 2023 down to Taylor Swift. Uh, yeah, as sad as it seems, it's it's a thing. Yeah, the the thing is, uh, uh, what Taylor Swift can do. I once sat in the um, lobby of a, a very cheap uh, Indonesian uh, hotel, or Malaysian hotel, um, where the girls behind the counter were playing Taylor Swift all evening, and it was perfectly anodyne. Uh, uh, pleasant, uh, forgettable uh, uh, pop music. Um, but the thing is, she does speak to young young women especially. Um, and young women are an incredibly powerful, um, incredibly important demographic to attract. If you go to a, a race in Spain, you'll see lots and lots of young kids. Um, um, you know, young, young girls, young boys, young children, families. Um, and the ability to get young women into a sport um, is very good for you know growing the sport. Uh, you know, the, the boys will generally watch sport anyway. You know, they're brought up, they're 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 socialised to watch sport from the beginning, um, which which young women aren't. And I think that um, uh, it, it's a way of expanding the profile, expanding the uh, you know expanding the profile and the popularity of the sport. And you know, more eyeballs means more money, uh, which is good for everyone. Even though you know, a lot of people love the fact that MotoGP is like a niche sport. It, th- th- they love the feel of the sport. Um, uh, that I think is. Uh, I, I can appreciate that. It is nice to sort of not trip over billions of people, um, but it's just better all round if there's lots. If if the if you have a really high profile uh, to your sport, because it means you get lots of fans. Yeah, my 15 year old son was trying to understand how that many people could watch a sport that is basically exists within two coastlines. I mean, the NFL do have uh, exhibition games. I'm not even sure if they're league games in, in the UK and also in Germany recently. I think for the first time, the NFL is actually coming to Spain next year. And, uh, you know, it, uh, the answer was, I told him, is that it's, there's media saturation for it. I mean, you can sit there watching sport channels with coverage of this stuff 24-7. And that's, of course, something you just don't have in Europe for certain, I mean, you do have it for certain sports like football. But then I also read a, a good article on the athletic.com website where they were asking, could the whole glitz and entertainment aspect of the Super Bowl and like the halftime show translate into something like football? You know, and then I was thinking, could you even have it on the grid? Because we have, what, maybe 40 minutes of build-up time before a MotoGP race at 2 p.m. traditionally. If you had some musician playing a 10 to 12-minute set there on the grid, would that also be something that, in terms of promotional entertainment aspects, would it work? I mean, let's not forget that Dorna Sports now have an American CCO. I think that's the, the right description. Sorry, Dan Russell, wonder if I've got it wrong. But, you know, he would be bringing that kind of um, thinking, that kind of uh, transformational, conceptualized stuff to MotoGP to try and increase that audience awareness, Dave. Yeah, I mean that's 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 very much the point uh, uh, about it. You know, like that kind of expanding the audience is really really important. Um, and uh, bringing on show. I mean, we're seeing it with World Superbikes. They announced they're going to be in a they're going to be doing a like a sunset race in Portimao during the summer, which is going to be great. That's going to be really fun. Uh, 
and then they turn that into more and more of a spectacle. One of the reasons that Le Mans is such a popular round is because, you know, you it is almost impossible to get bored. There is always something going on apart from the uh, traditional uh, murdering of the uh, of, of the journalist. <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there, there's, always, there's, there's always something happening. And that, I think, is, it, is you know, it, it's really important. It is, it is, first and foremost, or, well, uh, professional sport is a is an entertainment product because the professional in it means that people are getting paid money and the money has to come from somewhere. Um, uh, that, that doesn't de- doesn't have to detract from the sporting aspects uh, of it because you know the, the Super Bowl or N- the N- NFL is not fixed. It is very much a, a pure sporting contest. It's just that um, it's a pure sporting compa- uh, uh, contest which has been tailored precisely for TV. You know, TV and, and entertainment has an incredible amount of input into the way that it looks and feels. Tailored swiftly for TV, Div. Oh! <laughs> How did you miss that one? Come on. Uh, yeah, no, well, that's 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 right. Uh, that, uh, that's that's the sort of um, dad joke that I'd expect um, the the, uh, the dad of this podcast, Mr. Wheeler, to make. Please, I have a higher level than that. I can't... <laughs> I can't believe we talked much more about Taylor Swift than we did about mass dampers. I mean, that's um, maybe that's saying something about the Paddock Pass podcast these days. Uh, uh, mass dampers are um, a more, I mean, like there's there's facts involved in that and a lot less about uh, opinions. I know that Neil will be mass damping about Taylor Swift at some point later on in the day, so perhaps <laughs> we should be moving on. Um, we had another question from Mark B, um, a little bit more serious. Um, non-compete? clauses and um, with Ducati engineers being picked up by the likes of KTM, Yamaha and others, are there any constraints on what they can do? Uh, you know, are they free just to sort of dump all that IP straight into another hands of a manufacturer? What are our thoughts here? Uh, yes, they are free to do it and they do. Um, one, I, I remember, because it's the same with riders, basically. I remember when uh, Andrea Dovizioso left Repsol Honda uh, to join Yamaha on the evening of the, basically on the Monday, the Monday evening, I walked past the Yamaha truck and Andrea Dovizioso was in there with about uh, with about a thousand Yamaha's engineers just just listening to what he has to say. And it's the same for energies, uh, for for, uh, for engineers. Um, they can and do take people with them. I mean, like when we spoke to David Barana uh, earlier this um, uh, at the Ducati launch, he said exactly the same thing. You know, like they go and they take their knowledge with you, and you do you do lose that. Um, but there's nothing you can do about it. I think there is also a difference between U.S. employment law and EU employment law, uh, where non-compete clauses are um, that they're much more difficult to enforce here. Um, I certainly in the software engineering world where I have worked previously, um, we would occasionally get people who would try and enforce non-compete clauses, but they were basically made, they were rendered irrelevant. You know, they didn't want you to do, to, to do things. What the way that non-compete clauses usually work in, in Europe is that you're not allowed to go and, you know, like work for a company, set up your own company and then go and steal their clients. That's what you're not allowed to do that. What you can do is take the knowledge that you've gained and uh, use it in a different way. So, yeah, I, I, I think that a large part of it is the difference between EU and US um, employment law. But the other thing is like what, you would literally with a non-compete clause, you would basically be putting someone out of work. Thanks, Dave. Good stuff. Uh, we're at the end of our 
question and answer session from Patreon. We've got one more just from Matong or Matonj. Sorry if I've said that poorly. And uh, Neil, for you first, this is a bit of a four-parter. Was Mark Marquez really sandbagging in Sepang in, to avoid extra pressure? I heard Simon Griffar saying this, that um, he had seen him run repeatedly wide into the final turn and he thought maybe there was a bit of sandbagging going on. I, I don't think so. Uh, I really don't think so. I, I think it was just genuine adaptation going on. Um, obviously, massive adaptation going on at that. Um, and... You know, it wasn't as if he was slow. He put in a pretty handy time attack at the end of uh, day three, finishing up in sixth. Um, so, no, I, I think what we saw on the timesheets is pretty much where Mark is at, from what I can see. I don't really like the word sandbagging because it sounds like... Um, I think also, I think to be able to sandbag, you have to have the entire situation under control. I think what we saw in uh, with Mark was... Um, he just had different priorities. He was too busy figuring out how to go fast on the on the Ducati, learning how or trying to understand what the bike needs, how to ride it, how to adapt his riding style, all the rest of it. Um, and so he's less focused on you know banging out a really fast lap. He he, he did try you know a time attack, but the time he did, was trying a time attack for himself not to impress others. Pekka Banyaya, Jorge Martin, especially Jorge Martin, you know that they were out there trying to intimidate each other. Um, so they were pushing to the limit because they were doing something else, but they can push to the limit because they understand this bike in deep, deep, you know, intensely. They've been riding it for a couple of years. You know, they, they, they feel this bike. They understand it. Um you might say, you know, Pekka Bayar could sandbag if he wanted to. Um, I think in the terms of Mark Marquez, I think it's it, it's a bit more complicated than that. I think it's more about prioritizing what you want to work on than sandbagging. Yeah, it's far too soon. I mean, the, ad the adaptation process with uh, Ducati is still going on. So, uh, yeah, there are thoughts on that one. Uh, secondly, is the beast in Bastinini back? Uh, was he actually fast at the test or was it just the Sepang factor? Who wants to take this one on? I'll let you know next week after the Qatar test. Maybe that will be a fairer indication of whether the beast is back. It, it looked great. Certainly the noises coming out of Chikadi were that uh, Enea uh, is is kind of returning and is, is approaching his 2022 self rather than last year. What he was saying, just a lot less pressure that he's going into the into this season with compared to last year where it was a new team, new crew chief, new surroundings. Um, you've kind of got that under his belt now. He's had a year of that experience. And um, once again, he's got a point to prove. He's kind of like Jorge Martin last year. He now has to kind of show once again that he's deserving of, uh, of the seat that he has. So um, I think the signs are good, but we do also have to add the caveat that Sepang was the one good track that they had last year. Uh, Dave, you're prohibited from answering this next question, so you might as well just put yourself <laughs> on mute. Uh, based on Sepang, what would the front row at Qatar race look like, Neil? Uh, considering there's only three spots and Dave can't go through the whole 22 rider grid, I'm going to ask you for your opinion on this one. Uh, well, Banyaya, Marini, Zarco, Rins, Quadraro, Orbidelli. Oh, no, sorry, that's Dave's approach. Um, right now, I would say Peco, Martin, Bastianini. Right. Okay, so you're going all Ducati. Ducati are out front from Qatar. Okay, that'd be interesting to see. Let's see what that happens at the test next week. And Dave, you do get the last one. Tire pressure regulations, are they going to ruin the season? 
Uh, yes, but less than we think. Um, there is a lot of talk around it. And again, Pitt Barra said the same thing. Um, there was also talk in, um, in, in Sepang about this. What looks like happening is the tyre... Reg- well, first of all, we're going to be dropping uh, minimum tyre pressures. We'll be going down to probably 1.85 instead of 1.88. Uh, Piero Taramasso told me last year he felt that 1.85 was the lowest they could possibly go. Um, it also looks like we... Because at the moment, if you are doing... If you're you know below the minimum pressure for 50% of the race, um, you're going to be automatically disqualified. I get a strong sense from all sorts of people and also what um, both Francesco Guidotti and Pitt Byra were saying. Um, that is still not fixed yet. So there could be a different different penalty. People will be penalised, but they won't be disqualified. Uh, I, I suspect that we will stick with some kind of time, with some kind of time penalty. I, th- I think that is a much better system uh, overall. Um, yes, it, it's not ideal, um, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see how that works out. I also thought Pitt was pretty interesting uh, in his debrief, talking about some of the discussions of the MSMA and also the GPC, the Grand Prix Commission, for the rule changes for 2027. I mean, he was quite frank that, you know, there will be, of course, aerodynamics still in MotoGP, but they're going to be a lot more basic, a lot more reduced. I mean, he was dropping some sort of crumbs that we might see, or at least they're talking about. There's no confirmed direction yet, of course. But, uh, you know, he was. Um, it was good that he has that sort of transparency to say, this is what KTM want, uh, this is what we want, and this is the way that the sport's probably going to head. Yeah, but also we're going to see a capacity in reduction, sorry, a reduction in capacity, and that will naturally mean that we'll go from sort of, you know, 300, and 300 horsepower to, to 65, 270-ish. And so aerodynamics will naturally become less important because – Aerodynamics is the reason that we have so much um, aerodynamics is because we have so much horsepower. And the reason we have so much horsepower is because we have so much aerodynamics. Reduce the capacity, uh, drop the amount, you know, move to 100% um, uh, the renewable fuel. And then you get a different, uh, you get a different sport. It changes a lot. And so we'll see less aerodynamics. Well, that's it this week. We'll wrap the Qatar test next week and also preview the start of World Superbike season with Steve and Gordo on another podcast. Don't forget to send us your questions or comments through SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever you get your file. Also, remember to join us on Patreon, take advantage of that 10% discount offer for the year and join our competition for two paddock passes to a Grand Prix of your choice. We will be making the draw across the weekend of the opening Grand Prix at the LaSalle International Circuit. Dave, Neil, thanks for all the verbal diarrhea. Everyone else, thanks for listening. episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler music is provided by the libertines 
All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.